And what I did is I took my full professor application, my academic portfolio, and I divided it into the three pillars of academia, the academic research, the teaching research and service um, components. And I just gave examples of things that you can add to your CV um, so that you have a very good idea of what academia is all about. It gives you, it makes you realize actually how many things you are involved in, in real life, real everyday life, um, that you can include in your own CV application for tenure um, or full professor, associate professor, or whichever level you're applying for. Hi there, you're listening to another episode of the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, working on my PhD, and through chatting with other early career researchers, I hope to get tips and advice on how to get through my academic journey. In this episode, my guest is Professor Benita Oliver from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. In addition to her high level of research productivity in the field of physiotherapy, Benita runs her own YouTube channel and website called Research Masterminds, on which she shares solutions to challenges experienced by anyone involved in a research project. So she should be able to give us lots of advice. Before introducing Benita to you, I'd like to invite everyone to check out our short videos that we make for our YouTube channel on specific topics that come up during the podcast. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast, so do leave comments after listening and connect with us on social media to start a discussion. You can find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. Now, let's get back to Professor Benita Oliver. Benita received her bachelor's degree in physiotherapy from the University of Pretoria, after which she continued with an MSc in physiotherapy at the University of Witwatersrand. At the same university, she completed her PhD in the area of cricket fast bowling injury prevention, and a few years later she graduated with distinction with a second master's in movement analysis from the University of Dundee in Scotland. Benita is currently professor in the field of musculoskeletal physiotherapy in the physiotherapy department of the University of Witwatersrand. Her work focuses on investigating and promoting the prevention of musculoskeletal dysfunction, on which she has published a lot, and that means 59 peer-reviewed articles so far. Benita has received quite a few awards for excellent early career researchers. Not less important to know about Benita is that she has supervised 22 master and PhD students to completion and, and currently supervises 17. To support her postgraduate students, she developed a YouTube channel called Research Excellence or Research Masterminds, where she posts short videos which offer solutions to challenges commonly encountered by students who are going through the research process. So that's definitely worth checking out. Welcome to the What Are You Going To Do With That podcast, Vanita. How are you doing? Oh, thank you, Danny. You know, when you're talking like that, I'm, I'm always thinking that oh, you're now introducing somebody else or, or what's going on here. But I do appreciate the, the very um, graceful introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's all on you. You worked hard for it. So it has to be said. And I'm glad to have you on board. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> I'm going to pour myself my favorite drink now, which is Amaretto. What are mm -hmm. you having today? So um, I would love to have a, an alcoholic drink. You know, it is already um, in the afternoon, so it's the right time. 
But South Africa is in, in lockdown, back in lockdown. So our alcohol supplies are very low and um, running out. So I opted for a rooibos tea. Um, and I'm drinking a, a lager rooibos tea, which is made in, in South Africa. And it's something that we consume quite a lot in South Africa. Nice and caffeine-free, healthy drink. I love the rooibos. And I also like how you pronounce it. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> so while we're sipping our drinks... Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately not alcoholic I hope soon everything will go back to normal so that might also return to your life <laughs> um, I am ready to start with a few short questions Perfect. so the first one is who gets up first in your household oh that's a very good question so it's me I get up at 24 20 past four um, every morning Monday wow. Sunday holidays birthdays um, you know that internal clock just wakes up And I think my motivation is because if I get up at 20 past four, I'll have two hours just for myself. So then um, I come and sit in front of my laptop and I'm only allowed to do fun things. You know, the things that you think, um, what are the things that I don't have to do, but I would like to do? And um, that's what's happening 20 past four in the morning. So it gets quite easy to get up. I do go to bed um, at just after seven in the evening. So um, it's just that my time zones are shifted slightly. Um, I do make sure that I get enough sleep as well. <laughs> that sounds like a good start of the day and something I should consider because I myself struggle getting up in the morning. Yeah, and you're probably able to stay awake later at night. And that's something that I struggle with. If anybody invites us to any social event and they tell me that it starts at half past seven, I start to lose my personality <laughs> around about seven. So then it just is a huge effort <laughs> for me to stay awake. So, um, yes, no, you stick to your habits. <laughs> right. Everyone is a bit different that way. Yes. Okay. Second question I have is, if a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be? Uh, oh, yes, it will be a, a romantic comedy. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah, Lighthearted <laughs> and fun, um, seeing the positive and with a very good ending. I really hope that this life will give me a good ending. <laughs> right. Well, you're on your way, it seems, and we'll get into that in a bit. Then I'm very curious to know what is on your phone's wallpaper. Um. So, yeah, oh man, you should have sent these questions beforehand so that I could have been prepared. So um, I'm using the standard Vodacom wall wallpaper. So there's no picture of anyone or anything on there. It's quite embarrassing because I have quite a few people in the, this world that I really like and love that can earn a spot on that wallpaper, but there's nothing. <laughs> Maybe in a way it's also safer that way because then there's no competition. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll have to have a few interviews to see who earns that spot. <laughs> Are there any competitors? Um, yes, I have, a, I have quite a few people in my life that I, that I really love. So I have a, a husband very supportive husband. Um, I would recommend a supportive husband if in the academic life if we want to get anywhere. And then I have um, three little boys as well. So they are, are oh. in my life. And we have a, um, also a lady that works with us um, in our house, Eva, and she's also very close to my heart. And of course, we have our family. Um, we've got siblings and parents. Um, but those are the, the top earners, the top scorers. Right. So... Maybe after this, listening to this podcast, they will ask you and you're going to have to make some tough decisions. Yeah, yeah they'll, um, we'll work out a roster. If you could have someone to follow you around all the time, like a personal assistant, what would you have them do? 
um, in other words, which tasks will I allocate to them? Right. <laughs> um, I think the number one thing is that inbox. You know, you conquer that inbox at the end of a Tuesday and then on Wednesday morning, 20 past four, there's already how many emails in there. So I think if we can have, if I can have somebody that can follow me around and they, all they need to do is sort out my inbox. So I don't have to open it. I'll be very happy. Okay. So that's one of the tasks that's less fun and that also takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of time. But you're getting through it anyway. Yeah. Well, we're doing our best. Okay. Yes. As an expert in physiotherapy, I wanted to ask you, at what sports do people get injured most frequently? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not in a position to, to really um, uh, pretend that one sport is a, a more frequently injured sport than another, because as soon as I'm going to make my choice, I'm going to have a 13 other sports that's going to compete. Um, but the research that we're doing at the moment, um, even just this morning, we did a I, I reviewed a paper or, or gave input into a paper that we are planning to submit for publication in um, endurance runners. And you would think that endurance running is such a safe sport, but there's quite a lot of injuries that's happening in endurance running. And even for me, um, doing a lot of research in cricket, um, we would think that uh, the fast bowling action or the cricket as a sport is quite a safe sport because it's a non-contact sport. But there's quite a lot of injuries happening even in, in the fast bowling action, which is non-contact. But um, there's quite a lot of injuries happening. So I think in, when we look at sports, we always think um, in terms of contact and contact, you know, people bumping into each other. Those are the things that's causing the injuries. But there's a, quite a few other mechanisms we call it non-contact or non-impact mechanisms that is responsible for a lot of injuries. But luckily, there's ways to to prevent it, to properly rehabilitate it. That's the most important part, and that's why your research is so relevant. Are you doing any sports yourself? Um, yes, um, I I always went to gym. Um, now with lockdown, it's I mean the gyms are opening and closing, and it's a bit more risky to go. Um, but running, I also you know I run a lot, like daily. Um, it's a difficult for me to take a rest day, but um, I do if I have to, just for injury prevention reasons. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and now I'm actually ready to hear a bit more about your academic journey and how you got to where you are now. So I wanted to start at the beginning uh, with the BA and the MA in physiotherapy. Why did you decide that that's what you were going to study. Where did your interests come from? And did you also like it straight away? Um, I think I don't have a, a very exciting story to tell of how I got into university. I have a quite a typical journey where I went to high school and then it was time to choose subjects. And uh, physiotherapy appealed to me because of the physical nature of, of the, uh, the profession and because of uh, my interest in, in the health professions, you know, in keeping healthy and a healthy lifestyle. So that was a very good profession for me to follow. But I must say, I didn't know physiotherapy was what it is. Um, when I started studying, it was much wider. You know, if you think of a physiotherapist, you often think of um, somebody uh, uh, rehabilitating a sports injury or um, a person that you go and see if you have low back pain or maybe if you've been in hospital, it's a person that uh, treats the chest. But the wide scope of physiotherapy, I wasn't, I just wasn't aware of all the things that we do. I mean, from community physiotherapies to neurology, the work that we do in, in pediatrics, 
and chronic pain. So there's the scope is just very wide. And we also think of physiotherapists as only being in the physical realm. But we also have a, a huge link with the, the social and the psycho, psychological side of the human body in the we call it the biopsychosocial model. So it was just much wider. And um, I must say, I do understand when people enter a profession and they, they decide after a year that they it's not for them because it, you never know what you, in, you let yourself into. And I think I was very lucky to um, enjoy the profession and to just follow my dream from there onwards. Okay, so you did enjoy it, even though it might not have been exactly what you thought it was before. Yes, very much. No, I must say. Okay, so then at what point following the MA or maybe already during the BA did you decide I'm going to pursue a PhD? Yeah, it's uh, it's again one of those things, you know, um, for my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's in physiotherapy and my master's in physiotherapy, I I didn't know, I didn't even know what a PhD was. So um, I had to finish an MSc first and then I entered the academia with only an MSc um, and then I, I realized, but now, whoa, wait, everybody's doing PhDs. I need to do a PhD as well. So um, I wish I knew all these things when I was 17 years old. It would have made my journey in life so much easier. But I think I just learn as we go along. Um, and I think that's how many people learn as well. You know, you do finish one goal and then you decide what is our next step. And I think it's perfectly comfortable. This Even this morning, I spoke to somebody that said, um, you know, they finished their PhD now and things was so predictable for five years, you knew what you wanted to do during your PhD, but now the PhD is done and now you have to figure out the next step. And a few of us or a few people that I know have their next 25 years up to retirement planned, but many just finish one five-year goal and then they look and see what the next five-year goal is. What the right way to approach this life of ours is, I don't know what the right way is, but all I know is it seems to work. Well, I definitely relate to uh, what you're saying. In my case, I also kind of rolled into it, not really knowing what it actually meant. Yeah. Uh, and now, even though I'm just halfway, I'm already thinking about, oh, I'm halfway. And then what am I going to do after yeah. that? Uh, yes. So that's yes. also why this podcast is so important to me, because I want to find out what other people did and how they look at it. And maybe I can learn something from that. <laughs> no, I'm I'm thinking about it. When you started your PhD, I mean, you, you knew you wanted to do your PhD and you, you get so excited and involved in the PhD process. And now you're halfway. So it, it almost seems natural that you, now it's time to, to think about the next step. And I think it is perfectly fine to approach life like that. You know, we, we shouldn't put too much pressure on us to have the next 20 years figured out. We'll sort it out and figure it out as we go along. And can you imagine all those people who had a 20-year life plan and then the corona pandemic happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that even screwed up my one-year plan. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it depends on a lot of other factors as well. Yes. So yes. what I wanted to say is that as someone who's not from the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. can you please explain why you started focusing on crickets and injury prevention specifically? Um, so South Africa has been playing um, cricket for many many years and that it's one of our big sports you know what is what caused my interest in cricket is although I've been exposed to cricket in many different settings and in many different ways my I the fast bowling action is a, a very asymmetrical action so it's a, a fast bowling action that that happens a sports action that happens very fast 
and it's asymmetrical if you look at the fast building action. And that's the thing that, that drew me specifically. I'm very invo involved and very interested in human movement analysis. So if you think of um, human movement, the ideal action to analyze and to see why it's causing problems and pain and injury is to look at an, an asymmetrical action. And now the fast bowling action, I mean, it's they've got the run up, um, that ball gets delivered. There's huge loads, three to nine times the body weight going through the human body. Um, so there's high load. It's asymmetrical. The muscles need to work. There needs to be coordination. You need to be flexible. It's the ideal action to study. So as a sport, the sport as a whole, yes, um, I'm interested in that. And that's really a, a sport that I've been exposed to for many years. But what drew me was that specific fast bowling action, that human movement that takes place, that shoots a huge load through the body and that also predisposes a bowler to a lot of injury. Um, and that's the thing that really attracts me to to research specifically the fast bowling action. Okay, that sounds like a very good reason. <laughs> Even <laughs> though I don't know the rules of cricket or, or what the movements are exactly, I do feel like you explained uh, what's interesting about it from your uh, field's perspective. So when we're talking about the PhD, what was it like doing a PhD for you? And when you look back on it, like what were the hardest parts how did you overcome any struggles? Yeah, so um, if I look back at the, the PhD years, um, you know what? I started and I registered for my PhD, got very excited, you know, developed the proposal. And then I um, we decided to start a family and we I fell pregnant with my first baby. Um, then in, I just finished my data collection, the first phase, because we, we collected data at the start of the season, the cricket season at the end. Um, and then my, I fell pregnant again. I had to collect data, my end of season data, while I was seven months pregnant. That was quite challenging. Wow. I just remember driving back from a, a 12 hour to 14 hour day of working with the bowlers, being seven months pregnant. And then I'll be so tired that I'll, I'll drive past our off ramp on my way home. Um, and it happened multiple times. So that was quite hard. Um, and then I um, had my second baby was on maternity leave and a few months after maternity leave I was able to submit and if I think back of having doing the PhD and having children at the same time while being in the situation I often thought what am I doing but it wasn't something that I would like to I didn't want to postpone either of them I didn't want to have children later in my life I was um, I was 30 when I had the first one and then 32 when I had the seven, second one um, but I also didn't want to postpone the PhD because the PhD opened many doors for me in the academic life. So now when I'm thinking back, it took a lot of support. And there, my husband and, and the people around me that supported us, um, Eva, that was working at our house, and even my parents and family members, all that support helped a lot to get me through, uh, through these PhD years. And also... What made it work was the fact that I'm employed in an academic job at a department, the physiotherapy department at the University of the Witwatersrand. And my colleagues have created um, a culture in the department of research and support. So that made it much easier as well. You know, you enter that department and you know that you are going to do research, you are going to finish a PhD, and that's just helped with the motivation. But I do remember having a small baby, getting up, early in the morning sometimes my firstborn didn't want to sleep very well and I'll get up and I'll lie with a, a newborn baby on my lap let's say it was maybe a few months old by then 
and trying to finish an article that I wanted to edit because I really wanted to submit this article. So they, I often felt pulled apart by being a mother and being in the academic life. Um, now, many years later, you know, it's easy to look back and it, to say that it was all worth it. But thinking back of those days, there was really times when I struggled a lot. So um, it, it worked out all well and I'm glad that I combined all these actions. But for everybody who's in that situation at the moment, just know, take it one day at a time, plan well, and use your support structures. You are going to survive and it's going to be all worth it. You're going to come out on the other side with two children, healthy, happy, and with a PhD, and you'll be ready for the rest of your career. Well, thanks for that. That's very hopeful and a very different message than uh, some of the other guests who were academic moms that was spoken to. And I also understand that the support system here is very important uh, mm. to get through things like this. Yeah. Um, but also the constant, maybe, I mean, you don't have to, but this is something that women often feel this guilt for, should I be yes. pursuing or my career or be a good mom and take care of my children? Yes. Danny. So that's the, what yeah. you were saying, right? The struggle of what yes. you're going to focus on. That is a huge problem. So finding, sorting out that guilt and finding the balance, I think that was my biggest struggle. And, you know, to get past the guilt, um, what happens in the end, and I want to warn everybody out there, and most people who's gone through the process will know already, you tend to, to handle the guilt and to reduce the guilt as much as possible. You give up of yourself. So where I would have loved to, to spend some more time, you know, nurturing myself and me as a you know, me time, as we call it, all those me time will go into the children um, and you'll get up earlier and earlier to try and do things while they are sleeping. Um, and then when they're taking their afternoon nap, instead of you just binging on a empty series, you are back to the to your computer trying to figure finish something, even if it's just 45 minutes. So in the end, you give up a lot of yourself to make it work and to reduce the guilt so that you are there for your children when they are awake so that you don't have to say no to to parties or social events or um, painting you know with them on a Saturday afternoon but you are giving up something and that time needs to come from somewhere and it's coming from yourself yeah, so you are the one that bends over backwards and waking up at 4 20 in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah and then it stays with you for years after <laughs> <laughs> It's just this clock that's built yeah, in. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, it did work well for you because you became a professor just last year. Yes, um, yes. So it's a bit unfortunate that it happened right before the pandemic started. I'm not sure if you were able to see your professor office yet. Yeah, so um, so my, my office remains the same. Um, so you know, we don't change we don't change offices um, but I, I was able to I was promoted in January last year so I did have the you know the pleasure of still being with my colleagues and celebrating before um, our lockdown in South Africa started in March. Okay and then um, I wanted to ask you because most of the people I speak with are uh, in an earlier stage than where you are at in mm -hmm. your academic career uh, if you could maybe list a few things that you think were really helpful to get you to where you are now. But before answering that question, I wanted to go back to the motherhood mm -hmm. because I've also heard that sometimes, you know, people who hire others would ask, 
but do you have children? Are you already a mother? And does that mean that maybe you have less time to work on your career and publishing articles? Like, have you encountered issues like that? Yes. Um, listen, so I can tell you one story. And I'm, I, you know, I, I, hope, I hope we can eradicate that from our lives forever um, in some way. You know what? The best thing is that, that you can allow a, a, an academic who's also a mother to do is to make the decision themselves. As mothers, we know what our demands are. We know how much support we have. We know our own capacity. And we will be willing to say no if if a demand comes along and we won't be able to cope. So I can tell you one situation. I was on maternity leave with my um, first child and one of the universities, a very good university. Um, and you can imagine I was then still at my early career stage um, and they came along and they asked me to be an external examiner at that university for a program in sports, a postgraduate program in sports. That was ideal. And they emailed me earlier in the year. Um, I was, say, a month or two months on my maternity leave. And they saw my out-of-office reply that said, I'm on maternity leave um, and I'll be back in the office. Please, for urgent matters, contact uh, our postgraduate um, administrator or our secretary in the department. And and then um, before, they didn't contact the secretary in the department, but they immediately went on. And my maternity leave would have ended months before this opportunity to go to um, Cape Town for this external examination role. And um, the organizer, the invitee, the person who invited me, went on and um, didn't contact the secretary, but immediately went on and asked another candidate, assuming that because I'm on maternity leave and I had a new baby, I won't in eight months' time be willing to leave home. Wow. I would have loved to make that decision myself. So I did find out about that afterwards because they, they, I responded to the email, say, three days later or two days later, and then they told me immediately that they already asked another candidate because they assumed that I won't be available. Wow. And um, that was just one concrete outcome. And I often, you'll sit in meetings and you'll hear the talk of it will be a meeting to organize a, an event or a new project and then somebody needs to be nominated to be on a specific task team and when as soon as somebody nominates somebody with small children or recently had children um, one of the other people will say no 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 she had a baby um, recently she I don't think it's a good option but why don't nominate that person I mean if that person's got the skills um, don't take that opportunity away from that person. Nominate that person and let that person decide whether they have the capacity, whether they're up for it. So I think that subtle discrimination is definitely happening. And I, I really hope that we can get past it. And that in order to get past it, then us as mothers need to be honest as well and need to honestly state whether we'll have the capacity to take on a new role or to do a, a job um, so that we help the system where people can trust us when they ask us um, whether we will be willing to take on a role or a task or some demands that's being added to our our load, um, the additional load of being a mother as well. Right. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, even though they didn't tell you that this was the reason, right? You said you found out later. They, they told me... Um, when I when I responded to the initial email to say, yes, that will be a lovely opportunity, the response back was immediately, I'm sorry, we already um, asked another candidate who agreed to go into this external examination role because you weren't available. Uh, because you were on maternity leave, we assumed that you won't be able to visit us in a few months' time. 
So I think that, yeah, you know, it, it happens and it takes opportunities away from young mothers. A lot of assuming going on there. That's very not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you got to where you are now. You are a professor. Congratulations again. So what do you think were things that helped you to get there? Like, is it all about the many, many publications? Is it about teaching experience or having multiple degrees? Or is it a combination of those? What would you say? Yes, it's a it's a combination of those spot on, Danny. So I think the publications help a lot. Um, I'm not all for the numbers game. I must say, I think sometimes as academics, we we lose the point where we just want to publish one paper after the other and forget we forget about the impact that these papers need to create to create so yes um published research being published in a peer reviewed journal you're presenting at a congress there's definitely a level of impact that's being created but there's much more that we can do we need to disseminate these findings and translate it into real life and i think our role as academics and our knowledge that we gain through through doing research and through publishing um, and th through creating new knowledge, we need to go out and create impact in the world out there. So I think it's definitely a combination of, yes, publish your papers, but also find ways to create impact. So get involved in industry or in um, a postgraduate course that's being delivered by your professional society, something that, that creates impact. And I think that's because I was quite young when I was um, promoted to full professor, and, but, and I only had 59 papers when I, when I got promoted But I think what, what did push me through was the fact that I, I was involved in many other activities and committees and, and impact-creating situations. Okay, so it's not just the publications, it's also where and the extra activities that you do um, yeah. in addition to the normal jobs that we assume scholars yeah. should be doing. Yeah, yes, definitely. And um, it makes me think of, um, you know, we. <laughs> I don't know if you also get that question, Um, but as academics, we, we often get the question from our um, non-academic friends and family members that says, but it's, it's school holiday. Why are you working? Right. And um, it, just, <laughs> um, it just reminds me of the fact that academia is so wide and it covers so many different aspects. So I've put together for our Research Masterminds website a, a course, an academic CV secrets course. And that's meant for, for anyone wanting to enter academia. And what I did is I took my full professor application, my academic portfolio, and I divided it into the three pillars of academia, the academic research, the teaching research and service um, components. And I just gave examples of things that you can add to your CV um, so that you have a very good idea of what academia is all about. Because if you, as soon as you look at somebody else's full professor application or, or tenure track application or whatever level of promotion you are, and you see the type of things that form part of their academic journey, it gives you, it makes you realize actually how many things you are involved in, in real life, real everyday life, um, that you can include in your own CV application for tenure, um, or full professor, associate professor, or whichever level you're applying for. Now, academia is wide and exciting, and there's lots of variety. Right, so talking about the application, mm -hmm. um, what I often hear is that women 
that one of the reasons that women are less in higher positions or in leading positions is because they only apply for a job if they meet all the criteria that are written on the application. <laughs> and that men more often also are like, you know, I can do something like that, even though I might not have that many years of experience and then still apply. So when you applied for the professorship, what was that like? Like, did you also want to meet at all or did you... <laughs> <laughs> Danny, I think you are very right. Listen, I don't know the the gender specific gender specific research around when who's applying, but I do know in my own life that um I for I was I, I was convinced that I wasn't ready. The HR manager contacted me twice to say that listen, come and see me. We have to look whether you're ready. And the whole time I said, no, 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 I wasn't ready. I, I just had my third child, you know, next month, next year. Um and I'm so grateful for our HR manager because in the end, he, he cornered me and said, listen, you send me an email, we're going to set up an appointment. And that's where it started. And that's exactly what you said as well now. Um, I felt like I wasn't ready. And even I was on the day sitting in the waiting for the interview to happen. So um, it's quite an intimidating process. Um, I was sitting in the in the waiting room, lovely little coffee table, nice couches. Um, and the door where everybody was meeting, something like, 15 people, I don't know, I didn't count all of them, but there was quite a lot of people in that meeting room were not even 10 meters away from me and the door was closed. And you know that they're talking about you and your application while you're sitting in that waiting room. So one of my colleagues that was quite close to my heart passed by and she asked me, um, Benita, you look stressed. What's going on? And I said, no, listen, I'm I'm really stressed. And she said, no, this is going to be perfect. It's going to work out fine. Just have an answer to this one simple question. What impact did you create in your academic career? My, um, I was for 12 years in the academia. I started at the age of 26, turning 27. So she said, in the last 12 years, what impact did you create in academia? And all of a sudden, I couldn't think of one single thing. So I was on the brink oh. of being promoted to full professor. And here I am. That is such a good example of imposter syndrome. And I can't think of what did I actually do to the academic life or to the world out there. Um, luckily, I had a few um, minutes to just jot down a few things and it turned out fine. But I think that's such a good example of, of feeling like an imposter. I don't belong there. And how can I belong there? And, and I mean... The full full professorship application is such a rigorous application with um, input from all levels, from departmental to school to faculty level. Um, it gets sent to to local and international experts in your research field. And still, I didn't believe that I belonged there. So I can associate with what you said so much. So it took you quite a while to think of one of the over 50 articles that you'd written <laughs> <laughs> when you were sitting there to apply for that professorship <laughs> job. <laughs> Yeah, you're... yeah, that's definitely imposter syndrome. <laughs> but still, you got where you are now. But I'd like to really hear more about those 39 MA and PhD students that you have already supervised to completion or are currently supervising. And again, that's a lot. I understand mm -hmm. that you made also this website and YouTube channel Research Masterminds to help your students out. So tell me more about this project. Oh, the the one thing that I will always remember is that, you know, those people that say hardship makes you stronger. They are right. They are right. It Well, it either kills you or breaks you or you get out stronger, I guess. So in 2017, at the end of 2017, um, I was really going through a rough time. I completed my PhD in 2013 and life was going well. Um, 
So I enrolled for another master's for, for some reason. You know what academics do, we just study. And I was due to write exams at the end of 2017. But at the same time, I was supervising 21 master's and PhD students. Um, and seven of them, I inherited a whole um, bunch of students from a colleague that left the university. So that wasn't by choice that I supervised the 21 master's students. But it was a huge learning curve and I, I won't exchange that experience for anything. So seven um, of them wanted to hand in for examination that the, the, at the beginning of the following year, which just means... Um, it was two PhD and five MSc students, that there's a lot of reading going through. I mean, you send away one document, uh, a dissertation or thesis or research report to a student, and the next morning or, or there's another one in your inbox and you start reading that. So it, the load was quite high. And then at that same time, at that end of 2017, I, w I took over a new role of being research and postgraduate coordinator in our department. Um, so that was a, a huge new learning curve, but that role is supposed to come with a postgraduate administrator, uh, which is supposed to help with the load. Um, at the same time, when I started that role, the postgraduate administrator um, resigned uh, and oh, didn't come gosh. back. Um, <laughs> and we haven't appointed somebody in my old role, which means I, I had to handle the responsibilities of the old role, had the new role and the no postgrad administrator. Um, I did get a lot of support from our department and people did jump in to try and, and solve the situation. Uh, but I mean, the bulk of the responsibility lands on your shoulders. Then at that same time, my husband was playing for a, a Action Cricket World Cup and they, they were training and oh. they were away from, from um, home quite a lot for their training camps and it's the tour. And then I had these two little boys that I'm supposed to be a mother for as well. Yeah, I think I cried that phase over. And But I very soon realized that, listen, I need to survive this. The students that I'm supervising need to get the service. They're paying their fees. They need to get feedback. They need to hand in by that, that end of that year. I can't um, sacrifice or, or, or lower my level of service to them. I need to make a plan. And then I also realized that, like many other supervisors know, um, most of the students ask the same questions. They ask it at different phases, a week apart, two weeks apart, four months apart, but they, they often have the same things that they're struggling with. And I thought, let me make a YouTube video every time they come and ask me st something. And that's how the YouTube channel started. So I uploaded it on YouTube. And then um, there was quite a lot of international followers and people associated with the channel. And, and the following has just grown. And now, still, every time somebody asks a question, my most recent videos was, video was on um, which formats you use for your PhD because it's also a question that I got quite a few in the times in the past and um, to answer the question not only to my own students because you'll often have direct interaction with them I can now ask answer this question to my colleagues students if they're willing to watch the video or to some any international student who are willing to watch the video on which three formats are the best to use for your PhD and you can make your informed decision from there onwards. So again, it's the impact, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah yes, we have to all create, <laughs> we have to change this world. That's what we need to do. <laughs> so that's how the YouTube channel started. That sounds very good. So uh, we can find any information for PhD students about writing uh, and what else? So um, there's a lot of a lot of different playlists on there. So the the one the playlist that um, funnily enough is being accessed the most is the one on how to edit your document. Okay. So there's um and you can imagine 
And I, I was quite surprised because when I made those videos, I thought, you know what, you can get this information of how to edit, how to create um, your heading styles and all those things. You can find it anywhere on YouTube. Why don't they just watch that? But until the first student came to me the one morning and she said, um, listen, she only had an hour and a half last night to work on a project because many people are also doing a, a master's or a PhD or um, a part-time. And, and she spent that whole hour and a half trying to figure out how to create an, a, a table of contents, an auto-generated table of contents, and how to put a portrait table a, a table in landscape in a portrait document. And that just took a whole right. hour and a half. And I realized that, listen, we, if you only have an hour and a half, I prefer that you spend 30 minutes doing those technical stuff and an hour familiarizing yourself with the latest literature, thinking about how you're going to structure your discussion, reading new research on how you can give input into your project. So I decided that channel is going to be the home for whichever thing a postgraduate student struggle with. So there's the um, a systematic review, quite a few videos on the systematic reviews. Um, there's data analysis and statistical management, a few tips and tricks. Um, and yeah, and there's a, a channel for, oh, then there's a, a lovely um, channel on how to put your first manuscript together. So if you're writing your very first paper, now each and every student that comes, uh, that starts to write a paper, whether you've already submitted your master's or PhD for examination or whether you're in the process, if you are new to the publication process, um, that uh, specific playlist takes them through each and every step from step one of you know where do you start how big should this article be remember you've only got three thousand words you can't fit an entire phd into it until we get to how the abstract following the author's guidelines so all the things that i would have done and taken my students through they now go through these 14 or 15 different videos and they put together their their first publication and when they they are done with that course because they step for step by step. So you watch a video and you go and do it in your own paper. Watch a video and do it. When they get to the end of, of that, how many videos, and they send me the draft, then it is really in a good, good condition. And then it's easy to just polish it up and we submit. So it helps everyone, the supervisor yeah. and the students. Students, yeah. Great. We'll check it out. And I think that has kind of led us to uh, the last and important question of this podcast. Um, and as I mentioned, we had a lot of guests who are actually PhD candidates or postdocs and not already a professor. But now you are there. Uh, I wonder what your answer is to the question, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> so I need to understand the, the question very well first. Um, the that of what you're going to do with that refers to mm -hmm. what am I going to do? Your research, right? So yes. uh, you're contributing all of these articles yes. and your research in your specific field. And for a lot of people who are in their postdoc or PhDs, their end goal is to become a professor. Oh, but you're already the professor. So, so where are now. you actually going with that? Yes. Yeah. Danny, you know that a full professor needs so much explanation of such a simple question. Thank you for your patience <laughs> with me. That's all right. Um, so my, um, it was quite a, a difficult, I, I went through quite a difficult stage last year, um, knowing that I, I achieved my goal of being full professor. And I wondered, you know, what is the next step now? Because now, I mean, I'm already full professor. So, so where, 
where's there to go? And is there a, a glass ceiling or, or you know what the next step is? And it took me quite a few months to figure out what the next step is. And I think I figured it out now. So on the one side, I have my research area. Um, we have a, a research group, WIT Sport and Health, WISH. Um, our WIT Sport and Health, I'm under the director of that research group. And there's a lot of research that we're currently busy with um, from biomechanical analysis to injury prevention, various fields, all in, in sports and health, healthy lifestyle, sports injury prevention, um, even performance enhancement in sports. So that's my, my research side of things. So um, for this year, I decided that this year is the year for, uh, we would really like to get a large grant for our research group. And we also would like to collaborate with international um, research groups. We have some collaborations going on, but I do think there's much more potential to collaborate in the research group. And then um, parallel to that, I really want to grow the research masterminds um, and the help that it's creating in all levels. So we have our website, www.researchmasterminds.com. And whatever I learn in my journey in academia, while building the research group, while interacting with people and collaborating and creating new knowledge, um, I want to share those principles on the Research Masterminds website and the YouTube channel. So I think that's, that's something that can happen parallel, that we don't keep because we often learn things and then we forget it and then we have to relearn it later on. And imagine all my experiences can be shared with others who's in the same boat. And the ideal is for others to share their experiences with me as well or with others as well. And in that way, we won't waste energy for reinventing the wheel the whole time because that is what's happening really often. And that's the aim. If we don't have to reinvent the wheel, imagine we can start designing the rest of this cart that's going into the future right that sounds very good and also a lot less stuffy than people who are outside of academia who often ask me oh but you're just working on theory and you're just reading books and you're writing books and that's all yeah. Um, yeah, but you're is... going somewhere with that right you're lifting up others to get further uh, in their process and you also work on those uh, research projects that you said that you're the director of the center of yeah. So that's really nice. I, I like that answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you know what is the, you know what is the biggest thing that I think if if all of us and if each and every human in in this world can hold on to the the principle of sharing, I think sharing is the the keyword here. You know the hashtag. <laughs> because if I think of my own journey, um, firstly. Uh, in around 2016, um, I often offered to, to share my womb um, by being a, a surrogate for my, my brother and my sister-in-law. Um, that was a long story on its own, and it, it was a, a huge learning curve, a huge opportunity and a huge learning curve. And then I shared my experiences through the, through the Research Masterminds YouTube channel. And at the moment, we are busy with a, a data sharing type of, of project. And that's just the sharing that's taking place in my own um, in my own field, and even with a data sharing project, the principle is is also that we collect data. They're often locked up. We often don't reuse them properly. And why not put systems in place, um, ethics systems, and 
or legal systems that's necessary to allow for that data to be shared with others and for other people to to make use of this data so that we can do more with the limited resources that we have. And to do more with the limited resources that we have, it all comes down to sharing. So if we can, in, in 2021, just hold that principle, I think that will be just great. <laughs> sharing is caring. Yes. That's right. <laughs> All right, thanks. Um, I do have just a few more short questions you uh, before we can wrap up. So the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? You, know, you see, here comes the, uh, what impact have you created again? You know, <laughs> for those type of questions, I think we, um, I need four weeks of preparation time, please. <laughs> okay, so but you must have a standard answer now. Yeah, already. yes, my elevator pitch. Yes, you're right. Um, so I think my my most important contribution is in the cricket research. I think that is um, I, I, that is my interest, and that's where my knowledge lie. Um, and that's also at the moment I'm I'm applying that knowledge through consultations with Cricket South Africa and their um, elite fast bowling group where we are doing a bowling analysis, a three-dimensional bowling analysis. And then we have a feedback session and that's a very valuable valuable portion because we, we often get wrapped up in doing an assessment and observing a situation. But what about giving back and explaining? So um, we do a, the three-dimensional bowling analysis with these fast bowlers. And then afterwards, we generate a report and then we sit together, um, coaches, sports and conditioning um, trainers, physiotherapists on the various national and provincial levels together with the player. And we all give feedback on the report. Um, you know what? what in the bowling action is, is safe and performance enhancing, what are the dangers and so on. And I think that's that's a, a, a contribution to my field is to publish the research, the theoretical knowledge, but also to take that theoretical knowledge and apply it through creating impact into these elite fast bowlers bowling careers. So that actually helps them prevent injury. Injury, yes. That's great. Then... Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Um, I think one of the people that's really a huge inspiration for me um, is uh, uh, Professor Amy Stewart. So um, she's also the cause of me ending up in academia um, okay. because I was really resistant to taking up a position in Johannesburg. I'm living in Pretoria and I'm still living in Pretoria because no Pretorian drives on that N1 highway to Joburg if it's not really needed. And um, she just convinced me. And I think the fact that she managed to convince me was really because I was in admiration of her since I can remember. She, um, she She's just she's kind to other people and she mentors many people um, very effectively. And even till today, I mean, she's retired already. Um, she's still willing to assist um, two of my PhD students. She's mentoring them and, and assisting them with specific components where I don't have the skills. Um, so I think that is one of the people that really creates an impact in many people's lives. And um, Yes, she's an inspiration. That sounds very nice. Okay, and then um, my last question, and you haven't answered it yet, even though we did speak a little bit about your daily routine, is... How do you relax after a hard day of work? Uh, oh, what? Relax. <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't know how much I'm, I'm allowed to admit this, but yes, yes, I do. I do um, relax often. Um, so my exercise is my relaxation. And I think because I'm in the healthcare professions, um, it, we know the importance of lifestyle and lifestyle choices. So, uh, um, and it is, becomes a problem at times because, um, because I like my job so much and I like writing papers and I, I like reviewing master students' work. It becomes easy to just, you know, stay at work and just um, move through for another hour, two hours, and then it leaves much less time for you to be at home. But um, I'm also a, a person of many rules and regulations. My eldest brother um, once made me this this electronic book cover that says Benita's Book of Rules because I, I have quite a few <laughs> rules in my life. You know, I often joke that, you know, paragraph 54, line uh, 22 of Benita's <laughs> Book of Rules states that, you know, and then there's certain <laughs> rules involved. So I don't um, recommend being that rigid. But I, I do make sure that I, I relax by um, having very clearly defined working hours. So that's, and that's for me. I mean, nobody, nobody at, at our university or, or an employer is going to tell you, no, you're only allowed to work eight hours a day and not 12. Um, so those rules are definitely for me. But um, I do make strict rules of when I, I'm allowed to work and when I need to stop. Um, and then if there's unforeseen circumstances, of course, it will be a bit more. Um, so in the afternoons, uh, say around now with lockdown, um, around, say, four to seven, I make sure that I get out of the study. Um, I watch the kids while they swim or we paint. Yesterday we did a, a lovely painting session with the boys. I do spend my time quite a bit relaxing with the kids. Um, and then it's my running. I make sure that I spend at least 30 minutes a day with some form of exercise. And then, of course, um, I love it when my husband comes home because then we're always um, having lovely conversations. Uh, don't think we don't fight. It's just that most of the conversations are, are quite um, exciting. So I think that's that's how I relax. And um, I must say, working on research masterminds is also a very relaxing activity. It doesn't um, take a lot of... It makes me excited. And I think um, any activity that creates energy and feels like a break from the usual everyday activity can be called a relaxing activity. It doesn't have to be lying on the bed with a book or watching TV. It can be anything else. <laughs> if you enjoy it very much, it also counts. Yes. yes, if you enjoy it very much, it also counts. Definitely. <laughs> well, thank you, Benita, for joining us and sharing your academic journey with us today. I'd also like to thank our audience for listening again and remind them to check out Benita's YouTube channel, Research Masterminds, for more tips and advice. And while you're at it, check out our YouTube channel too of what are you going to do with that. All right, I was still thinking about how you didn't bring an alcoholic drink today because of a shortage. Um, and then the first thing I thought about is like, do you still have toilet paper? Because that was the first thing. Yeah, yeah that was a huge <laughs> that problem. That people had a run on. <laughs> listen, listen I, can, um, I can happily admit, we do have toilet paper. And we have, I think there's a, our alcohol stash, we've got around four, four drinks worth of alcohol left. So, <laughs> right. So, and yeah, and it's something that, but people make plans, eh? Yeah. 
I'm not, not we, we decided we just, we know when it runs out, it just runs out and we just buy whenever it open again. But there's people that really, they're willing to pay something like 600 rand a, a bottle of brandy or, yo, there's rough things happening here. You know, if you take people's alcohol away, some people, are, their happiness are dependent on that. 